This tape was recorded September 14, 1991 by the Bosselians of Wilmington, Delaware. I'm really glad you all came back this morning. That's encouraging. <laughs> you can imagine how a speaker would feel if he gives a Friday evening message and comes back in the morning and you only got about half your audience there. You... No matter how many nice remarks people have given to you, you can figure that out. <laughs> this morning I'd like to speak to you on a subject related to what we were considering last evening, but in a different uh, area of the theological curriculum. I'd like to talk about apologetics. I've been asked to speak to you about proof for God's existence. On April 7, 1980, Time Magazine had this to say, In a quiet revolution in thought and argument that hardly anyone could have foreseen only two decades ago, God is making a comeback in the crisp intellectual circles of academic philosophers. So ten years ago, um, that leading journal of American thought, Time Magazine, <laughs> was willing to grant that God was making a comeback. I thought it was an interesting way of putting it, you know, that God was making a comeback. One might have thought that if academic philosophers were now getting their, their you know, thoughts in order and recognizing the need to acknowledge the existence of God, that maybe academic philosophers were making a comeback. I believe that's really the way we should see it. The question of whether God exists, of course, is perhaps the most important question that any human being faces. Uh, Sigmund Freud, in a way that uh, offended many believers obviously, suggested that if religion is an illusion, and he thought that it was, that it is the greatest of all illusions because it is a species of collective insanity. The interesting thing is that the very opposite is true too. If, um, if God exists and unbelievers are following an illusion, then they are perhaps guilty of what we might call collective insanity on the same level of a child who, um, who denies his own parents' existence. And so the existence of God is a crucial question. And it's one of those questions that's not just crucial, but it tends to make enemies either way you go on it. Those who hold to the existence of God feel very strongly about that and have got to say some fairly strong things about those who deny it. Those who deny the existence of God tend to feel strongly about it and have very strong things to say about those who affirm it. This is one of those uh, benchmarks, you see, that in many places in the history of uh, the world is considered a benchmark of sanity or insanity going one way or the other. So we're going to ask ourselves this morning the question, does God exist and what should we as Christian apologists say and how should we approach the question of whether God exists? As many of you know, um, I have been a student of the late Cornelius Van Til and believe that his general approach to the defense of the faith is the most commendable one and I think the most usable and faithful one that's available to us. Not that you can't improve upon Van Til. I would 
like to, you know, maybe make just a little grain of sand's improvement here and there myself. But the fact of the matter is that he has given us the general approach to apologetics that I believe is the most, most faithful to Scripture and the most persuasive in dealing with men. However, many people have faulty preconceptions about what Van Til says about apologetics. Uh, as important a writer as uh, he was, Dr. Van Til was many times misconstrued. Maybe he wasn't as good a writer as we would like him to have been, but I think the faulty preconceptions that bother me this morning have nothing to do with Van Til's um, use of the English language. It has a whole lot to do with people not reading the English language that Van Til was using. I think specifically of a man like Clark Pinnock, who is a beloved Christian brother of mine, but I think he's been very um, faulty in the way he's portrayed Dr. Van Til. And I'd like to give you a couple of quotes from Pinnock to illustrate that. According to Pinnock, quote, it is not only useless, but wrong, according to Van Til. Not only useless, but wrong to appeal to theistic arguments or historical vindications in defense of the Christian faith. When Pennock stands over against Van Til, he teaches that, and I quote him again, a philosophy of Christian evidences which employs theistic argument and historical evidence is needed lest the gospel be discredited as a grand and unwarranted assumption. So we have people who portray Van Til as not believing in theistic proof at all. We have people who would tell us that Van Til simply wants people to make an unwarranted, theistic leap of emotion and make a commitment to the existence of God, but one cannot use his reason, one cannot argue about that matter. Now, Lord willing, later on this morning, I'll be speaking to you about fideism and that charge and the question of rationality and where the two stand vis-a-vis each other in Christian apologetics. But this morning, I'd like to take up this claim that Van Til does not use theistic proof. And I'd like to point to the fact that he does discuss the kind of proof that he thinks we should be using and then uh, try to exercise that method of proof before we get done in less than an hour. Far from rejecting the whole notion of theistic proof, you will find in the reading of Dr. Van Til's literature that he actually insists upon it. He insists that there is not only a theistic proof, but a very strong version of a theistic proof. And so let me quote him for you. Van Til says, The argument for the existence of God and for the truth of Christianity is objectively valid. We should not tone down the validity of this argument to the probability level. Christianity is the only reasonable position to hold. Not only is there a proof, it's a very strong proof. It doesn't point simply to the probability of God's existence. It points to the necessity of God's existence. And let me quote him again. There is objective evidence in abundance, and it is sufficiently clear. Men ought, if only they reasoned rightly, to come to the conclusion that God exists. That is to say, if the theistic proof is constructed as it ought to be constructed, 
It is objectively valid, whatever the attitude of those to whom it comes may be. Does that sound like somebody who says there's no way we can prove God's existence? Sound like somebody who throws out theistic argumentation and rationality and apologetics? Doesn't sound like that to me. Of course, it's a different question as to whether Van Til did a good job of what he um, set out as his program in apologetics. Maybe he didn't deliver that proof very well, or maybe he didn't speak very clearly about it. But you see, that's a much different matter than saying that in presuppositional apologetics, there's no interest in theistic proof, no attempt to use rationality to show that God exists. Van Til says that if people would reason as they should, there is an objective necessary line of thinking that shows the existence of God. It's unavoidable. Regardless of the attitude of the person to whom you're speaking may be, the argument shows that God does, in fact, exist. Well, then, why does Van Til spend so much time criticizing what have what people have come to call the theistic proofs? Why is it that when you read his literature, when Van Til looks at For instance, what St. Thomas Aquinas did in trying to develop arguments for God's existence, he is so critical of that. We have to understand that according to Van Til, the problem with the theistic proofs is not that one is trying to use reason to prove the existence of God, but rather he has problems with the way the theistic proofs have been traditionally formulated. The way in which the proofs have been traditionally formulated, he thinks, compromises the biblical message. And I'd like to give you a few reasons why that is. Ordinarily, when someone that is in the tradition of natural theology or uh, Thomas Aquinas or even the old Princeton apologetic, ordinarily, when such people present a proof for God's existence, they present the evidence for God's existence as though it were somehow ambiguous. As there's evidence for God's existence, there's evidence against God's existence, and so you have kind of an ambiguous situation. Uh, There's some excuse for denying it, uh, or holding that it is only probably true that God exists. Secondly, those who come in that tradition of apologetics present matters as though there's something more epistemically sure and certain than God himself. By epistemically, I mean pertaining to one's theory of knowledge. In one's theory of knowledge, there is something more reliable than the existence of God itself. And so you begin with that which is the most reliable in your system of thought or your worldview, and you go on to prove, with less certainty then, the existence of God. Van Til says that too is defective in the traditional theistic proofs. Moreover, it is thought by many who use the theistic proofs of St. Thomas Aquinas or the old Princeton apologist that the unbelievers espouse presuppositions about reality and knowledge are sufficient to account for the intelligibility of his experience and his reasoning. That is to say, the unbeliever's thinking is all right as far as it goes. It doesn't have any problems until it comes up against the big questions, like the existence of God. But in terms of the intelligibility of his experience, or the intelligibility of his logic, the intelligibility of his intellectual method, that's perfectly all right as far as it goes. And Van Til says, we can't accept that either. 
The unbeliever does not have a philosophical right. We're not talking about morality, although it's related. He doesn't have a philosophical right to call into question the existence of God. Moreover, Van Til argues that unregenerate men cannot be neutral and open-minded about these matters, and yet that's exactly what uh, those in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas suggest. If everyone would just come with a neutral mindset and look at the facts for what they are, then you can see very probably that a God exists. The Bible tells us, rather, that the unbeliever unrighteously and self-deceptively suppresses the truth that he is not neutral at all and we shouldn't, you see, pretend that he is if you pretend that he is that would be kind of like trying to fix an automobile that has a defective uh, carburetor pretending all along that the carburetor is alright we'll go and we'll take care of everything else on the automobile we'll just pretend the carburetor is alright well, the carburetor is not alright the car is not going to run well no matter how many other nice things you do to it And likewise, Van Til says we shouldn't be pretending that the unbeliever is all right as far as he goes or that he has a neutral mindset. Moreover, the God that is proven by the theistic proofs as they have been traditionally formulated, the God which is rationally proven in the way that St. Thomas Aquinas suggested that we prove him, may or may not be the God of the Christian scriptures. To prove that there is a first cause or an unmoved mover is not at all to prove that Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, exists. For you see, we're dealing with um, isolated truth claims one by one. There is a God, is this kind of God, and so forth, rather than dealing with an entire worldview that brings with it a full-orbed understanding of God, man, and man's place in the universe. You see, if you turn to the Bible, Romans the first chapter in particular, you'll see that each one of these matters is mistaken according to the Bible. Is it the case that uh, the evidence for God's existence is ambiguous? There's some evidence for it, some against it. What does Paul say? Paul says the entire natural order, the entire order of creation testifies to the existence of God so that men are without excuse when they do not believe in Him. He doesn't say, well, there's more evidence for God's existence than against it. He says they are totally without excuse. The Greek, interestingly, means without an apologetic. They have no defense for saying that God doesn't exist. According to Paul, then, are there matters which are more sure in terms of our thinking and our intellectual method than the existence of God? No, he says that God is constantly, clearly, and consistently making himself known to all men. There's no other proposition, not even the existence of the person who's doing the thinking, which is as epistemically sure than as that. Is it the case that the unbeliever's presuppositions about reality and knowledge are sufficient to account for the intelligibility of his experience and his reasoning? Paul says that because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they have become fools in their reasoning. Paul doesn't mince any words here. You know, he doesn't worry about being a banquet speaker and having to be polite. He simply says they're fools. They have a darkened understanding. They have a hard heart. 
He doesn't give them any room to say, well, okay, there's a little bit to be said for your side, and there's a whole lot to be said for my side. And so, basically, you haven't thought as clearly as you should. He says, you are a fool when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness and do not submit to the Word of God. Do not acknowledge His existence and live in obedience to Him. Is it the case that the unregenerate man can be intellectually neutral and open-minded? Can he be fair about the subject of God's existence? Well, according to Paul, he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. As Dr. Van Til would say, the unbeliever has an axe to grind here. He's not coming to the subject saying, well, it'd be interesting to know. I mean, is there a God or isn't there a God? I really, I don't, you know, it's indifferent to me. I don't care. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. That isn't the attitude of the unbeliever. The unbeliever hates God. Read on. Romans, the third chapter. What does Paul have to say about unbelievers? They're seeking after God, right? They're all out there with this, you know, kind of Gandhi, you know, image, you know, with sincere hearts and looking for peace and wanting to be right with the universe, wondering if there's a God. Absolutely not. They are liars, Paul says. The poison of asps is under their tongues. They are not seeking after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the unregenerate is not neutral. And is it the case that the God that uh, can be found to be very probably the case according to natural theology, um, is this God maybe the God of the Bible, but maybe not the God of the Bible? According to Paul in Romans 1, all men are described as, let me use the Greek here for a moment, nantes ton theon. Nantes tantheon, knowing the God. It's not that they know a God or have some vague idea of a God concept. They know the God, the living and true God. And knowing God, you see, they go on to become fools in their thinking. And so when Van Til has been critical of the theistic proofs, I want you to understand that he's been critical in order that he might be faithful to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. What's interesting about that is that people who defend the use of the theistic proofs, people like R.C. Sproul or Norman Geisler or what have you in our day, and throughout the history of uh, the Christian church as well, have usually appealed to Romans 1 to justify trying to prove God in the way that St. Thomas Aquinas did. They thought Romans 1, you see, lays a foundation for proving the existence of God on the basis of human reason thought to be neutral and objective and so forth. But when you look at Romans 1, as Van Til has taught us, it's precisely there that we see why we cannot use the theistic proofs as Thomas Aquinas and others did. Because they have all these faulty theological assumptions when they approach the proof of God's existence. Van Til argued throughout his illustrious career that there is no such thing as natural theology. When we mean by that, that the created realm supplies uninterpreted raw data that merely makes possible, provided men rationally reflect upon the data, 
makes possible a natural knowledge of a God at the end of our reasoning process. Let me say that again. Van Til has denied that there is natural theology, if you mean by that, that the created realm provides uninterpreted raw data, which makes possible, provided men rationally reflect upon it correctly, a natural knowledge of a God at the end of the reasoning process. Let me bring this down to earth. Natural theology says you go out and look at the world and you get some information from the world. It's raw data, uninterpreted. Everybody knows. What do we know? That there's corn growing outside. Of course, I have a problem with that because I had to interpret before I even told you that was corn. But okay, let's not get too picky here philosophically. We don't have all day. Let's just assume let's just assume that we know that there's corn growing outside and we know that there are cars moving on the street and so forth. We all know that there's motion, that things change. And if you take that raw information and you reason correctly about it, at the end of your reasoning process you'll say, Oh, well there must be a God that accounts for motion in this world as well, right? Think about it. Um, let's talk about peach trees for a moment here. Okay? Anybody think that peach trees just spring into existence, you know, from nothing? No, you know better than that. We are all scientific. We know that peach trees come when you plant one of the peach seeds and water it and nourish it and take care of it, and it finally grows up into a tree that's going to give you fruit. So here you have something that grows, that develops, that changes. And it didn't come from nothing. And so there is, if you will, a causal pattern for peach trees. If you want the effect of uh, peach pie, then you're going to have to work backward to peach trees, and from peach trees to seeds, and so forth and so on. So there is this pattern of cause and effect in the universe. Now, Thomas Aquinas and others like him would say, so we see motion, we see change, we see causality in our natural experience. And if we look at the whole world, we'd have to say, what caused the whole world to come about then? And it must be that there's a God, a first cause that we will call God. And so if we take the raw data of our experience and reason correctly, reasoning backward from effect to cause and that cause having itself a cause before it, then finally we come to a God at the end of our reasoning process. Our thinking didn't start with God, it ended with God. Mantle says there is no such natural theology. The natural man, according to 1 Corinthians 2, cannot know the things of God's Spirit. In Romans 3, as I've already told you, Paul says, There is none who seeks after God. There is no natural theology, according to Van Til. There is rather a natural atheology. Think about that. What the natural man does, looking at the natural world, is suppress the truth and unrighteousness, does not seek after God, and comes to the conclusion that there is no God or there cannot be a God. 
And so what we should speak of is natural atheology, not natural theology. Until men are driven to abandon their intellectual autonomy and to think in terms of the truth of God as their starting point for all thinking, they will never read the evidence properly for God's existence. But here's the kicker. Mantle adds, nor will they be able to make sense out of any area of their experience. When men will not presuppose the existence of God as the starting point of their thinking, they will not be able to make sense of any area of their experience. And that's why the theistic proofs should not cater to man's pretended autonomy. And so Van Til says we must stress the basic difference between a theistic proof that presupposes God and one that presupposes man as ultimate. Van Til's apologetic is based not upon natural theology, but rather natural revelation. And there is a huge difference between those two concepts. Natural theology says you take uninterpreted data, reason correctly about it, and then at the end of the reasoning process, you'll find that there is a God. Natural revelation, as Romans 1 shows us, tells us that the created order is a conduit of interpreted information about God that we understand at the beginning of our reasoning process. In just encountering the natural world, we know God. The world doesn't give us, as it were, the building blocks for an argument for God's existence. In coming in contact with God's world, we know God Himself. The created order is a conduit of constant, inescapable, pre-interpreted information about God so that all men already possess an actual knowledge of Him at the outset of their reasoning about anything whatsoever. And it's this knowledge of God that all men actually have at the outset of their reasoning process that makes possible their use of evidence or reason about anything else at all. And so, and so Van Til asserts that, quote, the revelation of God to man is so clear that it has absolute compelling force objectively. And from that standpoint, listen to this quote. He says, I do not reject the theistic proofs, but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of Scripture. I do not reject the theistic proofs, but I want them formulated in a way that the doctrines of Scripture are not compromised. And that's why Van Til never engaged in natural theology, but he was willing to argue on objective, rational grounds that God must exist, and he did that in a presuppositional fashion. The theistic proofs presented in this way are absolutely valid, he said. They are but the restatement of the revelation of God. Now, one of the things that has bothered people who have taken a little bit more of an interest in Van Til than Pinnock or Montgomery or Sproul or some of these others who have misrepresented him so badly about theistic proofs, one of the things that's bothered people that get to the place that they say, okay, Van Til does believe in theistic proof, is that they think he's never presented what that theistic proof is. It's one thing to say that there is a theistic proof, 
It's another thing to provide it. Well, let me see if I can move us along a bit further on that uh, score as well, because I think Van Til has told us what the theistic proof is. Van Til states his proof very forcefully and very concisely when he says, and I'm quoting him, the only proof of the Christian position is that unless its truth is presupposed, there is no possibility of proving anything at all. Here is the proof of Christianity. Without it, you can't prove anything. Now this is what in philosophy we call an argument from the impossibility of the contrary. It is a rational argument. It's well acknowledged in the history of thought. It's an argument about the preconditions of intelligibility. If you do a study on the history of doubt and certitude in philosophy and how it's been dealt with, you will find that many people, people who aren't even Christians, people who are Christians that aren't even presuppositionalists, will acknowledge that it is a legitimate program for defeating doubt to show that the doubt itself presupposes what is being doubted. Van Til has been doing that, you see, throughout, or did that throughout his scholarly career as a Christian. He was arguing that there is an objective, rational defense of God's existence. And it is just this. One must assume the existence of God in order to argue against the existence of God. And that argument is objectively valid. Of course, if you, if you can make your case, and I'm going to try to make one such case before our time's up this morning. And so when people say, yes, Van Til did say there's a theistic proof, but he never told us what it is, I'm saying, well, where did this quote come from then? He certainly did tell us what it is, and throughout his writings, he kept applying that very method. He kept trying to show that unbelievers are presupposing the worldview of Christianity, even when they deny it. How often did we hear his, uh, his illustration of the child who sits on his father's lap and slaps his father's face. Manzel says, the child is certainly insulting his father, but he could only insult his father if he were sitting on his lap. And likewise, the unbeliever is insulting God and saying, maybe there isn't a God, or for sure there is no God. But in doing so, the unbeliever is already sitting on the lap of God because he couldn't make sense of his reasoning otherwise. In short, Van Til's approach to theistic proof and his challenge to unbelievers is precisely that which we find in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? If we want to prove the existence of God, we need to make foolish the wisdom of this world. To show, as Paul says in Romans 1, that those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness become fools in their reasoning. We need to demonstrate that they could not reason at all unless they had the worldview that is based on the existence of the living and true God who reveals himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so let me try to contrast for you this morning two approaches to proving God's existence. One, the method of the natural theologian in the style of uh, Thomas Aquinas. And then using the same concept that is crucial there, show how a presuppositionalist would be able to reformulate the proof and make better use of it. And I'm just going to take hold of the most popular way of proving God's existence 
Uh, it's called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument tells us that for every event there is a cause. And so as we move back through the chain of causes, we must eventually come to a first cause, and that's what we call God. God is, if you will, the first cause, or if you will, the prime mover for what happens in this world. Causality, then, is used as a foundation for proving the existence of God. Now, you see, what's right about this argument is that causality does prove the existence of God. What's wrong about the argument is it certainly doesn't do it in that way at all. And so I want, first of all, to show you some of the internal philosophical flaws of the cosmological argument as it has ordinarily been used, and then take the concept of causality and show that it does give us a foundation for proving God's existence after all. Alright, what's wrong with saying that the world needs to have a cause? I mean, we as Christians believe that. We, we hold to the doctrine of creation. Well, I think it is true that the world needs a cause. But that's altogether different from saying that that proves that there is a God. Alright, let me say that again. I believe as a Christian that the world has a cause and needs a cause. That's different from my proving that the world has a creator. It's one thing for me to believe that as a theological dictum, another thing for me to prove that to an unbeliever, isn't it? I haven't proved that there's a God just because I hold to the doctrine of creation. And so many Christians look at the cosmological argument, and since they know we believe in creation, they say, well, this has got to be a good argument. We believe in creation. Well, that's altogether a different matter. I believe in creation, but I don't think that argument proves the doctrine of creation at all. In the first place, if all events in nature do have causes, that does not entitle us to demand a non-natural cause for the whole of the world. This is a critical argument. Uh, You'll find it in Immanuel Kant and many others, and I think it's inescapable. In fact, I have a book here entitled, Does God Exist?, and it gives the transcript of a debate on the existence of God um, held between um, a friend of mine, uh, James Moreland, and one of the leading atheistic philosophers of our day, Kyle Nielsen. And Moreland and I don't take exactly the same approach to apologetics, and so if you want to compare his debate with an atheist uh, to a presuppositional approach, let me encourage... Can I do a commercial here? Is that fair? I hope that you'll get our tape catalog and perhaps you'll purchase my debate with um, uh, Gordon Stein, who's another leading atheist uh, polemicist in our day. So you'll see some idea of the difference of how you approach these things. Anyway, Moreland's approach was, at one point, to argue that uh, the universe needs to have a cause, and so that shows uh, the existence of God. He argues that there's design in the universe, and so there must be a God who is the designer. And I think it would be good for us to hear how Kyle Nielsen, Kai Nielsen, responded to that. It's precisely the way that I have suggested here an unbeliever would respond. That doesn't prove that you need a non-natural cause 
for the world as a whole. Two quotations. Nielsen says now in response, uh, in answer to the arguments for design, as far as I can see, they only point at best to design in the world. They don't point to design of the world, nor do they show that a personal infinite creator created it. He goes on to say, there could have been a number of creators, some of them long gone. And this is a second problem in the theistic proof as it's been formulated traditionally. If your argument is the events that we see around us, peach trees, cars, whatever it may be, or people who are born, need causes for those things, and those causes need causes, so we end up going all the way back to a first cause, that does not in itself prove that there is only one first cause. In fact, somebody might argue that for as many things as we see happening in the world, there must be that many first causes all the way back there when you follow the chain to its beginning. To say there is a cause for each event in our experience is not logically the same as saying there is a cause for all of the events in our experience where the all here is understood corporately or is a, taking everything as a whole. In fact, when I was in graduate school, my logic course, this was one of the things that the professor tried to press upon people to show them you know, the use of quantified logic. There is a difference between saying there is a cause for each event and saying that there's one cause for all of it taken together. It doesn't follow at all that there is only one first cause. There may be many first causes. And interestingly, that is what Nielsen says to Moreland when he argues this way. He goes on to say, even if his argument about actual infinites would work, and I can't get into that in the time that I have this morning, but the argument from actual infinites suggests that there has to be a beginning of the universe or else there would be nothing here. If, um, If time extends backward infinitely, then of course, uh, and also extends forward infinitely, then any subset of the uh, thing we're talking about, this infinite, any subset would have to be equivalent to the entire set. Now you're all saying, why did I come this morning to listen to this kind of thing? (laughs) Whoa, why did I get into this? Okay, let's stop and explain this for a second here. Okay. If, if time past is infinite, then it has to be the case that I can never get to a beginning point for time, right? And if time forward is infinite, then I'll never get to an end point for time. Okay, now, if we were to add one more year to human history, would time infinite get larger? No, it can't. If we were to subtract one year from time past, would it be shorter? No. And so it turns out that any subset within this period that we call time would have to be equivalent to the entire set. There could be no addition or subtraction in an actual infinite. 
Okay? There is no addition or subtraction, and so there cannot be any movement of time. Or another way of saying it is, if time past is infinite, we could never have gotten to today. Because there would be an infinite extension backwards that would keep us from ever adding enough days to get here as we are this morning. That's kind of a... I know some of you, I know, listen, I've been where you are. I, some of you are sitting there saying, philosophers really waste time talking about things like that? <laughs> hey, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> All right, well, Moreland used this um, argument about uh, actual infinite as a version of the cosmological argument to show there had to be a beginning of the universe. Nielsen says, even if his argument about actual infinites would work, and I'm not sure that it does, again, this would not get you to an infinite God. Even more seriously, it wouldn't get you to something that wasn't utterly naturalistic. You see, even if you think that the universe had to have a beginning at some point, you hold to the Big Bang theory of the universe, without a God, you would just say the Big Bang was a natural event. The Big Bang doesn't have to have been banged by anybody, does it? So the cosmological argument is fallacious if it moves from what we know about our natural experience, that everything, every event has a cause within our natural experience, and draws a conclusion about something that goes beyond our natural experience. Therefore, there must be a supernatural God who created everything. That is a fallacious move. And as I've already told you, it's unwarranted to move from the idea that there is a first cause to the notion that there is only one first cause. I'm not even sure that you could argue from an unbelieving perspective that the universe is not infinite as long as you believe that that infinite is a series of temporally overlapping entities. It may be true that something has always existed from all eternity, but it's not necessarily the case that that is the same something from all eternity. And so you have one thing that gives rise to another, to another, to another, to another. And, of course, one mustn't forget the views of cyclic history that we find in many worldviews and pagan philosophies in particular. So the end of the story here is that if you try to prove the existence of God based on causality in the way that Thomas Aquinas did, you are not going to be proving God's existence and you're not going to be proving the Christian God's existence at all. And yet I told you that this concept of causality can be used to prove God's existence. And I'd like to do that now. And I've only got about ten minutes and so I'm going to have to be quick here. Can he do it in ten minutes? Can you prove God's existence in ten minutes, Dr. Bonson? Sure you can. And you can prove God's existence without a Ph.D. in philosophy. And you can prove God's existence without having gone to seminary. And you can prove God's existence without having read a book any time in your life. And you can prove God's existence without having read a book any time in your life. It'd be helpful if you read the Bible, of course, and thought that through. I am going to try to prove God's existence somewhat at a, uh, a moderate educated level, let's say. But I want to make very clear to you that if you understand presuppositional apologetics, 
The proof of God's existence is something that anybody can do. Talking to your milkman or talking to the local philosophy professor at college, you are able to prove the existence of God. Let's take this very important notion of causality and see how one can prove the existence of God on the basis of it. Everyone uses the concept of causality. Everybody assumes, to put it very simply, that future experience will be like past experience. It's only on that assumption, what we call the inductive principle in philosophy, it's only upon the inductive principle that we're able to learn anything at all. Think about this a second. You wouldn't be able to learn anything about the world in which you live unless you could count on past experience to be a guide for future experience. All right? You get up some night, in the middle of the night, and you stub your toe. And you have learned something, you think. You've learned, I don't want to stub my toe again, right? I'm going to watch out where I'm going. But now the only reason that you have learned not to stub your toe is because you can rely on the fact that the next time you stub your toe, you're going to say, ouch, again. I mean, it is all things being equal. Possible that the next time you stub your toe, you're going to say, wow, what an experience. (laughs) Boy, that... That's better than some other wonderful things that God has given us to do in this universe. I think I'll spend my time stubbing my toe. No, of course not. Because if the next time you stubbed your toe, it turned out to be some kind of glorious experience, you would have no basis for thinking that the third time you stubbed your toe, that it would be that glorious experience rather than that dreadful experience. If there's no uniformity in nature, then there's nothing that can be learned from past experience. Now, I've used stubbing your toe. We could talk about more complicated things in scientific laboratories and so forth. All of science, which is a sophisticated form of learning from experience, all of science presupposes the inductive principle, that the way things have been in the past is the way they're going to be in the future. That if A leads to B last Tuesday, A will lead to B next Wednesday. Okay? And now the question is, if that causal principle is so crucial to human learning so that you couldn't learn anything without it, the question is, what justifies your confidence that the future will be like the past? Now someone might say, well, if the future is not like the past, boy, we're in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like saying, and if people won't eat cows in India, they're in big trouble. Yeah, well, and as a matter of fact, they're in big trouble. (laughs) So when someone says, it just has to be, because just think how impractical, think how sad it would be if everything we've learned in the past didn't make any difference for the future. You can't appeal to that kind of, you know, I want it to be so. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope it's so. Rational people have got to do better than that. How do you know that the future will be like the past? That is, what is your basis for holding to this causal or this inductive principle? And I'd like to quote for you from somebody who had absolutely no sympathy for Christianity, the philosopher Bertrand Russell. 
Bertrand Russell, in fact, wrote a number of essays against religion and particularly against Christianity, his best known being Why I Am Not a Christian. And so I don't think that you can accuse me of uh, quoting a prejudiced source in my favor. I'm going to somebody that is not favorable to my conclusions whatsoever, and I'd like you to hear what he has to say about the inductive principle, this idea that we can count on the future to be like the past. I'm quoting from his argument entitled, On Induction. The business of science is to find uniformities such as the laws of motion and the law of gravitation, to which, so far as our experience extends, there are no exceptions. In this search, science has been remarkably successful, and it may be conceded that such uniformities have held hitherto. This brings us back to the question, have we any reason, assuming that they have always held in the past, to suppose that they will hold in the future? It has been argued that we have reason to know that the future will resemble the past because what was the future has constantly become the past and has always been found to resemble the past so that we really have experience of the future, namely of times which were formerly future, which we may now call past futures. Uh, This shouldn't confuse you. What he's saying is there was a time last Monday when Tuesday was future to it. But now, today on Saturday, that Monday to Tuesday sequence is a past future. Next Monday to Tuesday is a future future sequence. So we have past futures, future futures. Let me continue the quote. But such an argument really begs the very question at issue. We have experience of past futures, but not of future futures. And the question is, will future futures resemble past futures? This question is not to be answered by an argument which starts from past futures alone. We have therefore still to seek for some principle which shall enable us to know that the future will follow the same laws as the past. And then he argues for a bit here and getting to the end of the article. The inductive principle is equally incapable of being proved by an appeal to experience. Experience might conceivably confirm the inductive principle as regards the cases that have been already examined. But as regards unexamined cases, it is the inductive principle alone that can justify any inference from what has been examined to what has not been examined. All arguments which on the basis of experience argue as to the future assume the inductive principle. Hence, we can never use experience to prove the inductive principle without begging the question. Thus, we must either accept the inductive principle on the ground of its intrinsic evidence or forego all justification of our expectations about the future. That's a deadly sentence. I know that it's hard to listen to a long quote. I apologize for that, but it really is helpful. Pick up on this. He says, 
Thus, we must either accept the inductive principle on the ground of its intrinsic evidence. He's playing a game with you here. There isn't any intrinsic evidence that he can appeal to. But he's saying it's either that or forego all justification of our expectations about the future. The general principles of science, such as the belief in the reign of law and the belief that every event must have a cause, are as completely dependent upon the inductive principle as are the beliefs of daily life. All such general principles are believed because mankind have found innumerable instances of their truth and no instances of their falsehood. But this affords no evidence for their truth in the future unless the inductive principle is assumed. Now the amazing thing about this article and these words that I've quoted to you is that here you have a man of impeccable credentials as an intellectual, as an unbeliever, and as a philosopher who says that the very foundation of daily life and all science is something that has to be accepted on the intrinsic evidence for it. The intrinsic evidence for it. Not based on experience. Intrinsic evidence, you see, is just a secular way of saying the only way we could know it is by revelation. Everyone comes into this world and amazingly assumes the inductive principle. The inductive principle is used by everybody, but no one can offer a rational justification for it. It just must be accepted intrinsically. But you see, Christians are not in that sinking boat intellectually, are they? Christians do have a reason for accepting the inductive principle. The revelation of God and the character of God who is revealed tell us that he is going to keep the natural world working in a regular fashion that the future will be like the past so that the task given to man of subduing the earth can be accomplished so that we can learn things about this world about our experience in the past and infer that that's the way the world will be that's the way our experience will be in the future so here you have two approaches to the principle of causality one says let's be very neutral not assume anything take what you know about causality and see if we can't prove there must be a first cause God and that argument falls flat on its face which we would expect it to do given what Paul tells us in Romans 1 that's a form of foolishness to try to get that kind of God or many gods that are nothing more but the natural first beginning of a chain of events and causes on the other hand you can take the principle of causation point out that it is crucial to all human thinking in the advance of science and argue that if you do not assume the Christian worldview, then you have no basis for using the inductive principle whatsoever without the existence of God the unbeliever wouldn't be able to prove anything I made passing allusion to this debate I had with Gordon Stein. What I argued in my debate with Gordon Stein, the atheist, was that in a non-Christian worldview, there is no basis for holding to the laws of logic. The laws of logic are abstract entities. They are universally applicable, and they are absolute in their authority. But in the non-Christian worldview, there is no basis for holding that anything is abstract, universal, and absolute. Consequently, the laws of logic cannot be as we have thought they are, 
They cannot be what even unbelievers say they are, given their worldview. And so Dr. Stein found himself in this interesting situation. If he wanted to come and debate with me, he had to assume that there are laws of logic, because a debate that doesn't have any logic governing it is not a debate. I mean, if everyone can just say anything they want and contradict themselves, you know, over and over again, there's no debate here. So if he came to the debate, he had to assume the laws of logic. But, of course, the laws of logic make sense in a Christian worldview. They don't make sense in a non-Christian worldview. And, therefore, my argument to Dr. Stein was the fact that you came to the debate tonight proves my point. (laughs) Thank you.